Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Bear hunting season began on Saturday. Pennsylvania hunters recorded about 660 bears harvested on opening day, almost half of the previous years. There are about 20,000 black bears in Pennsylvania, and as human development continues to grow out from urban and suburban locales, bears are finding themselves in our communities with increasing frequency. Bears have an amazing sense of smell, seven times as sensitive as a bloodhound's. And when they catch a whiff of food, they will traverse any obstacle to get to it, especially human food that requires no hunting or foraging to find. Joining us today to discuss bears and their interaction with people is Mark Turnit. He's a wildlife biologist with the Pennsylvania Game Commission's Bureau of Wildlife Management. Uh, Mr. Turnit, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Scott. If you have a question or comment about black bears in Pennsylvania, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. I have to tell you, Mark, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on bear hunting, even though we are in the midst of the bear hunting season, but I do want to talk about the population. Let's start off with the population, 20,000 black bears in Pennsylvania. That is a population that has grown pretty, pretty uh, well over the last uh, two decades or so. Uh, why so many bears? Well, the growth in our bear population really is a, a wildlife success story. I mean, if you look back not that long ago in the 1970s, we had less than 4,000 bears in the state. And beginning about 1980, our population began to increase. And as you mentioned, we were right now at around 20,000 bears. It's been stable at that level for several years now. Um, but, the, you know, the reason we had such a low population in the past was overharvest. You know, you mentioned that we're in the middle of a hunting season right now. And and we do things a little differently today uh, than what we did back then with hunting, uh, bear hunting seasons. And so we were over-harvesting bears in the past. It led to low numbers, but a lot of that changed in 1980. And, and this recovery, a quadrupling of the bear population, is, is really a success story. So is hunting the only way that uh, the Game Commission can control the bear population? There are very few things that bears die from. Uh, most of them are related to man. They're either hit by a car, uh, removed as a nuisance, or killed in the hunting season. So... If you want to control a population, stabilize a population, uh, hunting is really the, the main tool. I'll give you, a, I give you a, uh, put it into perspective. Um, we went from less than 4,000 bears to 20,000 bears in the last 30-some years. That occurred while we were removing 20% of our population annually through hunting. So we, um, you can imagine that in the absence of hunting, what bear population levels would look like today, because we don't believe we're really anywhere close to what the habitat can support. We have room for a lot more bears but there's not a lot of tolerance for more bears. And that kind of leads to what you mentioned earlier about conflict. Yeah, and that's that kind of surprises me that you say that, that we have room for many more bears because we have heard so many stories of bears wandering into populated areas, coming up on uh, back porches, into backyards for bird feeders and, and that kind of thing. So what do you mean when you, when you say that, that we have room for many more bears? Yeah, well, you know, like with most wildlife species, there's a, a population level where if that um, species reaches that level, they start to impact their habitat. They start to have um, feedback in terms of reduced reproduction. There's competition for food. There's increase in disease, things like that. We really aren't seeing any of those indicators with bears in Pennsylvania. We monitor reproductive rates on an annual basis, and those numbers have been stable despite the tripling of the bear population. Um, when you look at weights of bears, they've remained stable. You know, we haven't seen a decline in health of bears as the population has grown. So it, that tends to suggest that there's no competition for food out there at the moment, that the bears are doing just fine at the population levels they have and that they actually have room for more. But then that brings in the, the conflicts you have with bears, and that's a whole different realm. And even though you've got room for more bears 
in the habitat, you may not want more bears, according to the public that lives there. Is it accurate to say that we have room for many more bears in certain areas of the state and probably not as much room for uh, increasing the population in other areas? Well, yeah, I mean, it, and it, it's because of these conflicts. Um, even though our populations could continue to grow, we have um, attempted to stabilize, and that's why I mentioned earlier we've been at 20,000 bears now for several years. We've attempted to stabilize or even reduce the population in some areas of the state because of conflicts. It's not, it's not necessarily because of overcrowding or habitat conditions. Uh, it's due to just bears getting into trouble around people, and those tend to be the areas where we have higher human densities. Uh, you mentioned disease, that uh, there aren't many diseases that uh, Pennsylvania bears suffer from. Uh, so we have a, a healthy bear population, uh, but we had a call here from John, who's traveling in his car, wanted to know what the incidence was of mange found in uh, the bears that have been taken. Yep, that would be the one exception. Um, mange, right now, our best estimates, we, I guess I should start out by saying we have probably more questions than we have answers when it comes to mange. It's relatively new on Pennsylvania's landscape, began in the, the 1990s, um, and right now our best guess is maybe around 2 to 3% of the population um, is uh, infected with mange. But that is something that we're, in fact, we're measuring it right now as we speak. There are, um, at the bear check stations during the hunting season, we are collecting blood samples. Um, today, yesterday, on Saturday we did it. Um, attempting to get a better estimate of just what the prevalence rate is in the population. But uh, from what we've done so far to date, it suggests maybe in that 2 to 3% range. What is mange? Uh, it's a condition of the skin. It's caused by a mite, uh, which is a small um, insect or bug uh, related to fleas. It gets into, burrows into the skin, um, and when it burrows into the skin, uh, it, ca- it leaves behind little tunnels, um, it lays eggs in the skin, and that results in itching. And as uh, the animal scratches and itches, they damage the skin, and that opens up the skin to secondary bacterial infections. And it's a, it's a spiraling condition of poor nutrition, scratching, debilitated condition, scratching. Um, it's a condition that uh, probably close to 200 uh, species of wildlife around the world it's been documented in. So it's not unique to bears. We see it here in Pennsylvania in coyotes and foxes, even groundhogs. Um, it's a, but it's a condition of the skin caused by this small bug. And let's face it, when a bear uh, scratches, it's not like uh, me scratching with my fingernails. No, I mean they uh, they do damage their skin when they. It's and it's a persistent scratch. You know, if you have a if you have an itch and, and you scratch, then you know that takes care of it. Well, with mange, it's there all the time. Um, they're constantly um, scratching against things, and through time, that damages the skin. You know, I'm going to jump around on you, uh, and Mark, and ask some of these questions. But you know, talking about a healthy bear population, I think about ticks. There's been so much emphasis and so much attention paid to Lyme disease in Pennsylvania over the last few years. Do bears uh, help to carry Lyme disease, or uh, you know, have a, a tick problem as well? Well, we, we do see ticks on bears during the summer. When we're capturing bears for research, we, we do see ticks on them. We tend not to see ticks on them in the wintertime. I don't if it has something to do with hibernation or, or the winter climate, I'm not sure, but they do carry ticks in the summertime. Um, and there have been studies done here in the eastern U.S. Uh, looking at blood samples from bears and, and determining whether or not they've uh, been exposed to things like Lyme disease. And those um, exposure rates are relatively high. But what we don't see are clinical symptoms. You know, we don't see the, the symptoms that you or I would get if we were infected with Lyme. So we do know that they are exposed to it. We do know that they carry ticks, um, but they don't seem to display the clinical signs, the arthritic joints and the other problems that would come along with Lyme disease. I told you, Mark, I'm going to jump around on you. Black bears aren't always black, are they? No, they, uh, despite their name, uh, <laughs> they do have different uh, phases, of different color phases. The, the, ne- the one is probably... Most common next to black would be brown. It's called brown phase, but it, it's a spectrum of colors, everything from blonde to dark chocolate. Um, here in Pennsylvania, that is less than 1% of our bear population. Uh, in a harvest of over 3,000 bears, we might see a half a dozen brown phase bears. So it's, it's uncommon, but it happens regularly. Uh, if you move to the western U.S., some of those states out there, it's over 60% of their population would be brown phase. So it's, there are differences in prevalence across the United States across the Bear Range, but here in Pennsylvania, it's pretty rare. Even those uh, western states where the the bears are brown, they're still called black bears. They're That's still the correct. species. Yeah, they, you know, we, there are three species of bears in North America: uh, grizzly bears, black bears, and polar bears. 
And we only have here in the eastern U.S., we only have the one black bears. I'm glad we don't have the grizzly bear in Pennsylvania. I mean, they're nice to look at in pictures and all that, but uh, that would seem to be a little bit uh, dangerous. But uh, we're going to talk about uh, more about uh, human interaction with uh, bears and what to do, how to protect yourself, how to protect the bears, too. Uh, but I did want to kind of end up the, this portion of the program talking about uh, the bear hunting season. As I mentioned, and I've seen a couple different figures, maybe you can update me on this. Saturday, the first day of the bear hunting season, I saw one figure that there were 666 bears killed. Then I saw another figure of uh, 659. No matter what it is, it's generally over 650 bears taken, which was down a lot from last year, the first day. Why? Well, if any of your listeners were outside on Saturday, they yeah, can answer that question yeah, for you. It was, I know. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, I've been working with the Games Commission now for, I'm on my 18th year, I've been working with bears for 25 years. This would have been probably the worst opening day of the season in terms of weather that I've ever seen. Um, it rained. It started out as freezing rain and sleet uh, at 7.30 in the morning. It rained all day, and at 10 o'clock at night when we were all headed home, it was still raining. So that impacts participation. Um, people just aren't as enthusiastic about going into the woods when it's pouring rain. And we, so the harvest was about half of what it typically would have been. So it's participation. The hunters wanted to stay in a, uh, a safe, dry, warm place. What about bears when the weather's like that? Well, you know, bears are used to it more so than we are. Um, uh, so they, you know, they, they may hide up in some thicker cover, but they really, you know, they, they don't change their behavior that much. Uh, just because it's raining, unlike people would. Mm-hmm. And, and to give you an idea, you know, on two on the second day of the season, which would have been yesterday, on Monday, um, the harvest was almost fell with exactly within what the long-term average should have been. So, you know, even though we were half of where we were on Saturday, we were right where we should have been on Tuesday or on Monday. And, that, and again, that relates to participation. And I was going to ask you about yesterday. What about the, what are you seeing? I mean, you, you literally are at a bear bear check station, right? Yes, in, in Pennsylvania, any hunter who successfully harvests a bear must take that bear to a check station. And so we have 26 check stations operated by the Game Commission across the state. Uh, we want to examine every bear. There's a lot of information that we want to get from that bear so that we can manage the population. How about uh, average size? What are you seeing this year? Uh, it, it's, it's been typical. You have to keep in mind that um, younger age classes are the most abundant animals out there. You know, you can imagine a population has a lot of young animals and then progressively fewer and fewer older animals. So when you look at average weights, um, they tend to round around between about a 100 to 250 pounds. But again, that's a lot of young bears because that's the most common bear on the landscape. But we do have some big black bears here in Pennsylvania. Oh, absolutely. We, we lead the country in terms of uh, the size of some of our bears. We you know we've had a half a dozen bears over 800 pounds in the last 15 years. Every year we get uh, um, typically over 50 bears that are over the 600-pound range. Um, so we get 500, 600, 700-pound bears in the harvest every year. Uh, I think the largest bear we've weighed so far this year in this year's season of after only two days was a 700-pound bear. And if uh, you've ever visited the Pennsylvania Game Commission headquarters in Harrisburg off Elmerton Avenue, uh, there is a bear uh, that uh, you know that a taxidermist uh, had his way with uh, that at one time was. And let me ask you this: I say one time because I'm not sure; it hasn't been updated whether it was the biggest bear uh, killed in Pennsylvania. It was killed illegally. Is that still the biggest bear? Yeah, that, that particular bear, like you mentioned, was an illegal harvest, um, and unfortunately, the illegal activity had already butchered the bear. It had already been cut up. So. An accurate weight wasn't possible. We could make estimates of the weight based on the size of the skull and the size of the hide, but um, we didn't get an actual scale weight. Um, that bear, uh, it was probably went over 800 pounds. Now, if you want the, the actual animal that, that we have weighed on a scale, um, the record is 876. Mm. What do bears eat in Pennsylvania? <laughs> well, I guess it's easier to answer what they don't <laughs> eat. They, uh, they're opportunists. They eat uh, anything that's available to them. Um, a natural diet would consist in the spring of a lot of green vegetation. They would move into uh, late spring, early summer insects, a lot of ants, bees, um, particularly things that they dig up out of the ground, underground bees' nests or ant nests. Uh, then midsummer would be a lot of fruit, and that's a very long list of a variety of plants that produce fruit here in Pennsylvania. You move into late summer, early fall, if they switch over to a lot of nuts, uh, beech nuts, acorns, hickory nuts, um, things like that. So it changes seasonally. Um, 
and it's very diverse. When do they go in hibernation into hibernation here in Pennsylvania? That tends, it's based on sex and age. Um, uh, females that are pregnant in the fall tend to go into hibernation first, and that could be late November, uh, early December. Uh, adult males tend to be the last group, and that could be all the way out into January some years. So it's based on sex and age, um, and as the different groups go into hibernation, adult males being the last. How long are they typically in hibernation? Well, those, those pregnant females, they, they go into hibernation late November. They won't come out until April, and so that's five months. Um, and during that time, if they're pregnant, they'll give birth to cubs. Uh, they won't eat. They won't drink. They won't um, leave the den. They'll stay in the den the entire time, yet they'll nurse those cubs on a daily basis. So it's not the typical hibernation we think of, of an animal just laying there inactive. There is a lot of activity going on in the den, but it's amazing to think that there's no intake of food or water that whole time, and, he, and in some cases, cubs being born. Yeah, what are they doing while they are in hibernation? I mean, when we were growing up as kids, we were thinking, okay, bears are in hibernation. They're sleeping the entire time. Well, I, I guess you could describe it as a, as a form of rest or sleep. Uh, if you walked up to a bear den in January and looked in with a flashlight, the bear would look back at you. They... Uh, they're alert, they're capable of running from the den, they're capable of defending the den. So they're not the typical uh, torpor that you would think of, of a, a, say, for example, a groundhog. But um, they are inactive. They're not leaving the den. Physiologically, they're not taking in any liquids or solids. So they are in a state of hibernation physiologically. It's just not the hibernation we typically think of. Now, you wildlife bi biologists, and especially those of you who uh, specialize in bears, I know you reach into the dens sometime, shine flashlights in there. Uh, I don't know. That just would seem like it would have potential to be dangerous. Well, I, I mean, every job has its risks. Even being a host of a radio show has its <laughs> risks. <laughs> but uh, it, like with every job, if you do it, if you do it correctly, it's, um, those risks can be mitigated. You can be safe. You've never had a problem? I've never been bit by a bear, no. Oh. Well, the, why, you you say that with like it's uh, everyone should say oh, I've never been bit, bit by a bear. <laughs> well, I've been around a lot of bears, and so they they they've certainly had their opportunity, but it, it fortunately it's never happened. <laughs> You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Uh, during this portion of the show, it's all about bears. Going to be talking about uh, what to do if you see a bear in your yard, how to uh, avoid a bear, what bears were afraid of, all those kind of things in just uh, a, a few minutes. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalk.org. WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And coming up a little bit later in the program, I guess you could say this is kind of a science program, uh, we will be talking with a Penn State researcher who talks about their discovery that it rains the chemical that makes up sunscreen on a planet they discovered 2,000 light years away from Earth. That's coming up a little, a little bit later in the program. Now, uh, before we get back into our bear discussion, uh, I have a, a question from a listener from Roger that's a little bit off uh, the beaten track, but, uh, but it's something that you probably could uh, could answer as a wildlife biologist. Do you see any possibility of another important predator, the eastern panther, the mountain lion, returning to portions of Pennsylvania? A study shows that a lot of potential panther habitat exists in western PA. Well, I mean, I guess anything's possible. I mean, there was a, a mountain lion uh, a few years back that uh, migrated all across the upper Midwest and showed up in Connecticut. Um, we know that because of a series of trail camera pictures along that route and, and DNA evidence. So mountain lions, particularly young males, have the ability uh, to travel long distances. So when someone tells me, I, I saw a mountain lion, I usually, I usually, you know, don't, 
write them off right away. I, I like to listen to the story, maybe have them send a picture, maybe send a, a photograph of a track, whatever they thought they saw. And often, though, that comes back to be something else, a fisher, a bobcat, or, or, or whatnot. But I, I, it is conceivable that a mountain lion could walk to Pennsylvania, but do we have a breeding population in Pennsylvania? That seems very unlikely. I mean, there are so many uh, roads in Pennsylvania, so many opportunities for animals to be struck by vehicles, so many hunters in the woods during our hunting season. We have nearly a million bear, uh, hunters in Pennsylvania. So if there was a breeding population out there, I think it would be detected. But does that mean that something couldn't walk here? It's, you know, I guess that is possible. I, I think that uh, there are people who are kind of wishing that there were uh, that there were mountain lions here in Pennsylvania because they want Nittany lions, real Nittany lions in Pennsylvania. So uh, let's take a call from Gary in Juniana County. Gary, you're on the air. Hello, Gary? Gary, can, can you hear me? All right, I'm going to put Gary on hold because I don't know why he uh, all of a sudden I couldn't hear him. But anyway, let's get into some of the, the human interaction. Um, as we, you know, it's well known here in Pennsylvania that we are seeing many, many places where and it becomes a news story because, oh, uh, a bear walked into, uh, you know, a housing development or even on the edge of a city. Uh, I think that and you tell me, but uh, I think I have heard that uh, there have been bear sightings in all 67 counties in uh, in Pennsylvania. So I would assume that the reason that uh, bears are going into areas that are inhabited by humans is that need for food, that they continue to look for food. Correct. Well, that's the reason they stay. Um, the reason they show up in those areas has a lot to do with dispersal behavior, um, has a lot to do with just growing bear populations in areas adjacent to those um, highly residential areas. And but, so it's not uncommon to have a bear walk into a community or residential area. In fact, it happens almost every day in Pennsylvania throughout the summer. But where we get start to have problems is when those, those animals that are traveling through find something to eat while they're there and they stay and they become habituated to expecting a food reward from people. Uh, they begin to associate people with food, and that's when they become a nuisance. So seeing a bear in a community is not necessarily a bad thing. Seeing one repeatedly in a community becomes a problem. What happens if you do see a bear when, you know, say you're within 100 feet of a, of a bear? What, what do you do? Well, I, the first thing you should do is just let the bear make them aware that you're there. You know, make a little noise, cough, uh, yell out to the bear. And most bears in that situation, once they realize somebody is near, will turn and run. Um, they're, they're just typically very secretive, um, tend to flee from things that scare them. And, if, uh, and people are in that category. So if, if they realize somebody is near, often they'll just turn and run, and that's the end of your sighting. Um, if a bear remains persistent, though, and maybe approaches you or, or doesn't necessarily run off, then you need to treat it like you would a stray dog in your yard. You would yell at it. You would wave your arms. You try to encourage it to leave because you don't want it to hang around. You don't want it to become conditioned to expect uh, any food or anything like that in your yard. It's not a good idea to run from a bear, is it? No, no. You want to keep your eye on the bear. Uh, you want to know what the bear is doing so you can adjust how you're reacting according to what the bear is doing. So, you, you know, the big don'ts are, the three don'ts are don't run, don't turn your back, and don't try and climb a tree. What um, if... Go ahead. I was going to say, because you can't outclimb a tree, you can't outrun a bear, and you want to know what they're doing. How fast can a bear run? Uh, you know, the, the number that's cited most often is between 30 and 35 mile an hour sprints. So you're not going to outrun a bear. How does that compare to, say, a deer? Ah, boy, I, I would say it's similar for short, for short sprints, yes. Really? See, that would surprise probably a lot of people, probably because bears are so big compared to a deer. But it sounds like uh, they're nimble for their size. Yeah, they are. They just, uh, you know, they, they're built for a quick burst of speed, but they're not in it for the long haul. Bears are bears tend to be lazy. Uh, they're not gonna they're not gonna run after um, thing like something like deer for a long period of time or or people. But they are capable of running fast, quick, fast maneuvers right off the start, and so that's why we tell people don't try and run from a bear. When you say run after deer, do they actually do that? I mean, do they seek uh, deer as as food? Well, deer do show up in the diet of bears. Um, it tends to be fawns, though, um, and it tends to be very young fawns. Uh, there's a behavior that fawns have where they, they lay still right after they're born to avoid um, detection by predators, and it's in that period where they don't run. They just lay in high. It's a hiding behavior. Um, bears tend to find them um, at that stage, but once they start to become mobile and run from threats, 
um, bear predation drops way off. They, like I mentioned earlier, they're just not meant to be a, a running predator. What if uh, there are cubs involved? Do humans change their behavior as not running, not climbing trees, not turning their backs? Do you do anything differently if there are cubs that have been seen as well? Well, that, that advice applies to all bear encounters. Um, females with newborn cubs or females with cubs, cub, cubs spend 18 months with their mother. Um, those those adult females can be protective of those cubs. They can act aggressive. They may um, growl. They may uh, make short bluff charges. Um, they may uh, appear uh, defensive of their cubs. But if you look at the statistics over time, um, actual injury from a female with cubs are pretty low. They, they tend to put on a good show. They're very protective of their cubs, um, but they're not necessarily represent uh, an actual attack risk like uh, maybe, an, maybe an adult male might. But the advice is the same no matter what bear you encounter. Let the bear know you're there. Um, try to discourage that bear from approaching you. When you say an adult male, how's an adult male different? Well, there, if you look across North America, there's roughly uh, three-quarter of a million bears in North America. Um, and that range extends from Mexico City all the way through Alaska. About uh, 39, 40 states right now have bear populations. Somewhere in that area of North America, there are typically one to two people killed by a black bear on an annual event. So very low incidence. You're more likely to be struck by lightning or killed by bees or all kinds of other things. But it does happen. And when it does happen, they tend to be um, predatory uh, male bears. Um, it tends to be statistically what those animals are. Bears don't have a taste for humans. No. I mean, if we would have, uh, we would have much more problem with bears if anything like that was the case. I mean... Mm. We, got, we have 20,000 bears, over 12 million people in Pennsylvania. They're interacting with uh, one another every day on a regular basis, and we just don't see that type of behavior. When you say a bluff charge, uh, what I'm picturing is a lot of noise, uh, pawing at the ground. Is, is that a pretty good description? That, that's exactly it. They might make um, one or two bounds with their feet and stop with their legs very stiff, kind of um, slide in the dirt, that type of behavior. When do they get on their hind legs? Uh, that is a, lots of misconception. A lot of people think that's an aggressive behavior. Actually, what a bear is doing when it stands up is trying to assess the scent that is in the air. Uh, a bear's uh, their best scent or sense is their smell or their ability to smell. And so, when they rise up off the ground, air currents are a little better off, higher up off the ground. Uh, they're getting a better perspective of what's around them. They have detected something that they're nervous about, and they rise up on their hind legs to get um, better assessment of what that is through the sense of smell that's in the air currents. All right, let's take a phone call. Gary is in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Quick bear story. We're here 25 years. We have 127 acres, and we're surrounded by about 400 acres of woods. And I've never seen a bear. I know they're here and whatever, but last January I was cutting firewood. A gentleman behind us had timbered, and I always thought a bear's den was some kind of cave or whatever. Well, some three trees had fallen, kind of crisscrossed each other with the canopy still on them. And I'm cutting firewood, and I stop for a minute, take a break like I often do. And I'm looking, and I see two eyes looking at me. And I'm thinking, wait a second, I just saw a shape a while ago, and there weren't any eyes there. And I heard this little sweeping noise, like chirping. So I'm thinking, well, it's got to be a bear. So I run down to tell my daughter, and my wife is adamant about not going back because she's sure I will be eaten. And so later she says, <laughs> My daughter, take your pistol. I, I abhor guns. I, I would never shoot an animal. But my daughter said she would take her pistol to protect us. And my wife goes, no, 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 no. Just shoot your father in the leg. <laughs> <laughs> she was sure you would be eaten. That That's the line that I'll remember, Gary. Hey, thank you very much for your call. So, Mark, what he said about, uh, you know, he always pictured uh, bears being in a den in a cave. But it sounds as if uh, what he found was a bear in uh, a group of trees. Yes, what he saw was a very typical, what we call a ground nest den, a uh, brush pile type den. And in, like you said, uh, the cartoons depict bears going in and out of caves in the wintertime. That's, that's what we grow up thinking a bear den looks like. But reality is we do see bears use rock cavities for dens, but they tend to be very small cavities, really not much bigger than the bear. Um, because there's a conservation of energy and heat um, to heat a small space like that. They, they don't use great big cavernous caves. But what they tend to use most often, though, are these nests on top of the ground, just a, a rake together, a nest out of, of twigs, or, and uh, maybe break some branches down and make a, what looks like a big bird's nest, 
or hollow uh, underneath a fallen tree or back under a brush pile. That tends to be the most common den. Let's get, take a call now from Jim in New Bloomfield. Jim, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, I just wonder, uh, do bears get rabies? Uh, they, they do. You know, a rabid a rabid animal is, is aggressive, hmm. and that's okay if it's a you know a skunk or a raccoon. But a, a an aggressive bear with rabies would be uh, something to behold, and, and I wouldn't want to deal with it. Jim, so, I think that's so, a great question. Thank you very much for your call, Mark. You say they do? Yes. Any warm-blooded mammal can get rabies. Um, there are a few documented cases of bears getting rabies. Uh, we had one in State College years ago. We. Uh, that's the one I'm familiar with here in Pennsylvania. Um, that bear died um, in a residential area. Some people found the bear. Um, we investigated the site. There had, a lot of the vegetation had been chewed off. The bear had been very aggressive right before it died, and when we tested it, it was positive for rabies. Uh, there was also a case in Maryland I'm familiar with. There was one in, I think, maybe two in Virginia. So they, it does happen, um, but it's very uncommon. They just they're a solitary animal. They don't necessarily interact with the vector species that, that spread rabies as much as other species of wildlife might. But as Jim suggested, I mean, we're, we're told that if you see a rabid skunk, a rabid raccoon, stay away because they can be aggressive. But a rabid bear, wow, that is something I don't think anyone would run, want to run into. No, and like I said, it's, I'm aware of one case in 18 years here in Pennsylvania um, so it is very uncommon, but you would recognize it right away as an unusual behavior for whatever the bear was doing. You would recognize there was something wrong with that bear, that it wasn't acting normal, um, and, you know, you would avoid that bear. Go inside your house, go inside your car, uh, you know, whatever. Fortunately, it seems like the, um, the uh, aggressive phase of rabies in bears tends to be very short. Um, this bear that we did find um, looked like it had been aggressive for just a little bit right before it died, and then it succumbed to rabies. Gwen is in Fairfield. Gwen, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I've had two sightings of a bear in the last week. One was Friday night and one, well, a little over a week. One was a week ago, Monday night. For the first time in 26 years that I've lived in, on my property, um, the first time I've ever seen a bear get to my trash can um, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Anyway, my and I saw... Uh, another one, or maybe the same one, I don't know how far they travel, um, Friday night. Um, my, I've had two dreams about a bear since then. Now, my question is, how do I know if the the bears in Fairfield area were harvested or how many? Or <clears throat> that, That's well, one question. The other question is, I have a 30-pound white dog that goes outside. Is it safe? Yeah. Yep. Real good questions. Gwen, thank you very much for your call. Yes. So, Gwen, a couple of things. Um, if you're interested in harvest statistics, um, we have a, you can go to our uh, Game Commission's website, um, www.pgc.pa.gov. Uh, on that website, there is a link. I think it's called Hunt Status Update or something like that. And in that link, there is a map down to the township level that shows harvest, how many bears harvested by township. So you could drill down to your county, your township, and you can look to see if any bears have been harvested in that township. Um, the next question about dogs. Yes, dogs are uh, uh, a source of conflict with bears. Um, a very common scenario, uh, homeowners used to letting their dog out every night before they go to bed. They have a garbage can on their porch. Um, the bear has found the garbage can and is coming to the garbage can every night, but the homeowner doesn't realize it. They open the back door, the, bear, the dog runs out, into the yard like it does every night and gets in a tangle with the bear. Um, and then the homeowner, homeowner runs out and tries to separate the two and, and ends up getting knocked down by the bear. So a couple of, of, of advice here. Um, one, if, you're, uh, if there are sightings of bears in your area, just make it habit. Look out the window, turn the porch light on, um, just kind of look around before you let the dog out. Um, if there are food attractants on your porch that have attracted bears, eliminate those. Put them in the garage, put them in the shed. If they're bird feeders, take them down. If you're out uh, walking your dog and there have been sightings of bears in the area, um, leash the dog. Um, put the dog on leash just until the sightings, you know, the, until there's no longer a sighting in the area. Um, you're really not at any risk by having a dog with you, but you're, by putting the dog on leash, you're just kind of making sure that there's no problem with the bear. Um, and then the final question or the final comment I would make is that garbage cans amount to about 40% of our conflicts. 
50% of our conflicts involve bird feeders, 40% involve garbage cans. And so if you can do things to secure those attractants, you can reduce any risk of conflict with the bear in your area. Take the bird feeders down, secure the garbage cans, don't put them out until the morning they're picked up, stuff like that. Are smaller dogs in more danger than uh, some of the larger breeds? You know, it's hard to say, uh, Scott. Um, I think some of the uh, smaller dogs um, may think that they're able to take on a bear, and then once they're confronted by a bear, become intimidated by the bear, and then run back to their homeowner because that's or their pet owner because that's where they feel the safest, and and they bring the bear in tow. So, um, you know, we t- we just try to like to give the advice out that if you're in an area where there have been regular sightings, keep the dog on leash. Mark Turnett, a wildlife biologist with the Pennsylvania Game Commission's Bureau of Wildlife Management. Learned a lot about bears today, Mark. Thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Researchers at Penn State University have discovered a unique weather phenomenon on a planet almost 2,000 light years away. It snows sunscreen on a planet Kepler 13AB, not like copper tone, but titanium dioxide, the main ingredient in sunscreen. Researchers have discovered that planets and satellites in our solar system and throughout the universe have truly strange weather patterns by earthly standards. Joining us to talk about strange rain on planets, both far and near, is Thomas Beatty, an assistant research professor at Penn State's Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics. Dr. Beatty, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, before we get into it, now, I, I have to admit that uh, I was surprised when I read the, the story about the discovery of sunscreen uh, raining on this planet, Kepler-13AB, that, uh, you know, I'd never heard anything like that, then found out that there are all kinds of precipitation, if you will, on uh, other planets as well. But let's talk about this discovery in particular. Uh, how would you describe the kind of precipitation, and I don't even know if that's the accurate term, way to describe it, but how would you describe what happens on Kepler-13ab? Well, so pre- precipitation is a good word, I think. So what's happening is is that there's this titanium oxide gas uh, that's on the day side. So the day side of this planet is uh, probably about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's extremely hot. Uh, and then the night side is much cooler. It's probably 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which <laughs> is still hot for us. Yeah, it's, it's much cooler. I don't know about right. that. Yeah, it's a balmy 2,000 degrees. Um, <laughs> And what happens is that titanium oxide, uh, like on Earth, titanium oxide is solid. That's why we can get it in sunscreen. So as it moves to the night side, it turns into a solid. And it sort of, it effectively snows out on the night side. And so you get this sort of sunscreen snow uh, as these particles form and then fall into the planet. And the particles themselves are probably very small. It's about uh, it's sort of like smoke from a fire. That's the same sort of particle size as what these probably form. So, and one thing I, I want to clarify, that when you say uh, the sun side, the warm side, as opposed to the dark side, is this planet is so close to a star that it is constantly in sunlight on one side and dark on the other, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's the planet's the day side is 5000 degrees because the planet is probably uh it's very close to the star. Uh it goes around the star. Uh so it takes the earth 365 days to go around the sun. Uh it takes this planet uh 3 days to go around its star. So it's extremely close and that's heating it up. Um and so one side of the planet is always day, one side is always night. Uh but the key uh the key difference is is that just like earth how we have winds uh, this planet has wind, so the the atmosphere of the planet is moving around it at probably uh, something like a kilometer per second are the winds. So they're actually almost supersonic winds uh, moving around this planet, moving material. You know, and again, as I'm reading about uh, your discovery, wind, gas, gravity. Gravity is a big part of why it snows uh, this this uh, compound on on this planet, right? Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really very interesting uh, for those of us who work on it. It really just reveals how sort of diverse uh, planets can be. Um, 
people have been looking for uh, this effect that we saw, this titanium oxide snow for several years. And we eventually, this planet in particular, has a gravity that's uh, about 10 times higher than gravity on Earth. And so that means that when the snow happens, it falls much faster. Um, the reason is, uh, you know, things in gravity will f accelerate at the same rate, but the, the terminal velocity in the atmosphere is a lot higher. Uh, and so when you look at planets at the same temperature but with lower gravity, you don't see the same effect. And so it's really telling you that, you know, planets have, uh, you know, many different properties that all go into setting what their climates are. Now, you said that it probably is accurate to call it precipitation, but here on Earth, when we think of precipitation, we think of rain and snow, um, you know, it comes from a, a water source, that uh, there is water. We're talking about gas in in, in this case, correct? Uh, yes, that's right. Well, and, and, you know, Earth is a very particular uh, situation, it seems like, in the universe, because we have water. Uh, and we see it in ice, we see solid water, we see liquid water, and we see uh, water vapor, steam, and there's water vapor, humidity in the air. So we can easily see on Earth sort of all three phases of, uh, of water. And that seems to be something that's very, so far seems to be relatively rare in the universe. Usually things are either gas, or they're liquid, or they're solid. Uh, and you can move between gas and liquid or gas and solid, but you rarely get all three like we do on the Earth. Planet Kepler-13ab, which I wish it just had a nice, simple... Uh, I know. You know? <laughs> yeah, we sort of get used to these telephone numbers. I know. Than, like <laughs> HD 80606B or And do you know where that is? Uh, I do. It's in uh, it's in the constellation Cygnus, so it's up <laughs> in the summer. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, if you wanted to try and look for it, uh, it's uh, it's about 1,700 light years away. So that's um, about one-tenth of the distance between us and the center of the galaxy. Well, this actually, I said uh, almost 2,000 miles. Actually, it's 1,730 light years away from, uh, from, from the Earth. Uh, and it is an exoplanet. What does that mean? What's an exoplanet? So an exoplanet is a planet that is, uh, orbits another star. Uh, that was a word that was first invented about 20 years ago when the first one was found. Um, so uh, I believe it's Greek, but yeah, it literally means just a planet that orbits around another star. So the same way that the planets in our solar system go around the sun, the Earth is orbiting the sun and Jupiter is orbiting the sun, um, there are other stars in the sky, and some of them have planets that are orbiting them. So we can look at them and find out what they're made out of and what their climates are like. So how do you identify weather on other planets, especially when they're so far away? Uh, that is a very good question, and to be perfectly honest with you, that's sort of the entire game, is figuring out clever ways to look at them. It's very difficult to actually see one of these planets directly. The, the analogy that, you all, that people always use when they're giving talks is you say it's like trying to see a, a firefly a couple of feet away from a searchlight, and the firefly and the searchlight are in Los Angeles, and you're in New York, and you're trying to tear, pull them apart. Oh, um, man. Well, it turns out, actually, I looked this up, that analogy doesn't quite work, because that's actually about a thousand times easier than trying to see a planet <laughs> or another star. <laughs> it sounds like a, you, you, you uh, have your work cut out for you, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, well, it, so it, it makes it very fun, actually, because what we do instead is we don't look at the planets directly. Uh, most of the time what we do is we look at what they, do with the, what they do to the star. And in this particular case, what we looked at is we can't see the planet and star separately. But what we can do is we see them as one, effectively, we see them as one pixel, one point on the image. And when the planet passes behind the star, uh, we can actually measure the, that decrease in brightness because you're, you're getting brightness from the star, brightness from the planet. And when the planet goes behind, things get just fractionally dimmer by probably one part in a thousand. And we can measure that using big telescopes on the ground and the Hubble Space Telescope uh, in space. Yeah, I was about to say that the, the Hubble t Space Telescope has been uh, what you've utilized here. But at the same time, if it's so difficult to see this planet, this star that is so far away, then how can you tell what kind of precipitation the planet has? Well, so that is an interesting logical chain. So we didn't actually see the precipitation. What we saw, it was really what we didn't see. It was sort of a, the case of the dog that didn't bark in the nighttime. Um, usually what you see when you look at these planets is you see a stratosphere. Um, Earth has a stratosphere. Most of the planets in the solar system have a stratosphere, like Jupiter. Um, 
And that shows up in the spectra of the planet. If you look at the brightness, if you look at the colors of the planet, uh, you can see that uh, evidence for a stratosphere. And we, when we looked at this planet, we did not see a stratosphere. Now, this is unique on Kepler-13ab, that uh, there's sunscreen, and, I, and I'm just going to shorten it to that sunscreen, sure. that uh, is, is falling as rain on, the, on this planet. But this is not unusual on other planets that there are objects that uh, uh, we would not think of here on Earth. For example, diamond rain falls on Saturn, Neptune, and Jupiter. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's very. It seems very weird, but you know, it's you have to think it's all about it's all about temperatures. So on Earth, we're very close to uh, we can have liquid water. Um, on say uh, uh, Saturn, the temperature is much higher. So instead of getting liquid water or solid water on Earth, like in snow, uh, Saturn gets solid carbon. There's carbon gas that deep in the interior is solidifies and that's what turns into diamonds it's so hot and the pressure is so high that the thought is that it just turns directly into a diamond um but there are other uh you know rains in the solar system so one of saturn's moons actually titan has a has a cycle that's very similar to earth but instead of water it uh it uses methane what it was a natural gas so you have these methane lakes that evaporate and you have methane clouds and then you have methane rain and we can see this. We can actually see there are seasons on Titan, and the lakes come and they go, and there's rains. Uh, and it's uh, it's very exciting to study because you get this completely other climatological cycle that you can compare to Earth and see, you know, what makes uh, what makes a climate go effectively. Saturn, Neptune, and Jupiter are much closer than obviously uh, Kepler 13ab uh, with diamonds and I you know I, I, I don't know if you can even estimate what kind of diamond there is on on uh, these planets but you would think that man would want to find a way to try to uh, mine those diamonds if you would you'd think so you know uh, if there's one thing that gets people out of bed in the morning it's uh, getting rich um yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is that uh, for us is that the diamonds are probably forming close to the center of the planets. And the planets themselves are probably about, so Jupiter is about 10 times the diameter of Earth. Um, and down in the center, the temperature is, so is uh, tens of thousands or even millions of degrees. And the pressures are extraordinarily high, which is why the diamonds form. So uh, the diamonds are forming, but it would not be a nice place to visit. Uh, to go try and grab some. Yeah, but uh, you're right, Dr. Beatty. If there's money involved uh, in the future, who knows? There may be diamond miners on 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 Saturn. You know, there are other uh, forms of precipitation as well. You mentioned uh, Titan, Saturn's largest moon, where there's icy methane. Mars, dry ice, snow. Jupiter, liquid helium rain. The Sun actually has plasma rain. What's that? So plasma rain is, um, so the sun actually is interesting. So the sun, the upper portions of the sun are convective, uh, which means that there's gas that's moving up, there's hot gas moving up and cold gas moving down all the time. It's actually very similar to uh, the atmosphere on Earth. We have these big convective cells uh, on Earth. And so uh, that's what happens in the sun is that this hot gas moves up and then it condenses. And plasma really just means uh, a gas that has been, uh, that is extremely hot, and all the electrons uh, have been booted off and it's turned into ions. Uh, but it's this extremely hot gas that's condensing. And so it's actually, um, I said that when we look at these planets, that we don't actually see the planet. We see the planet and the star together. Uh, and for us, for me, when I'm trying to find out about, learn about the planets, these convective motions that we see in other stars as well uh, is actually a, is becoming a big noise source because we can actually see that in the observations and it makes uh, makes our lives harder, actually. When you say a big noise source, what do you, what do you mean? Oh, so what I mean is, <laughs> so uh, most of my day is spent worrying about uh, when we take these images, the images are never perfect uh, and the stars are never perfect. The star, stars vibrate a little bit. They sort of ring like bells and they're burping. Uh, they're getting brighter and dimmer a little bit just on their own. Um, and so there are all these other sources of signal, which I just call noise because I'm not interested in them. But there are people here at Penn State who spend their whole career studying them. 
Uh, you know, one man's signal is another man's noise. Um, <laughs> and when you say noise, you don't mean actually something people can hear. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, yes. By noise, I just mean, uh, you know, variation in the right, observation. Right, Yeah. We uh, don't actually hear it. That, that's what I thought. Uh, you, you, we only have about a minute left or so, and uh, Dr. Bader, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. How can this research be used? Well, so it's really, it tells us about how planets form. Uh, so the way you can think about it is, if you wanted to figure out how a tree grew, the life cycle of trees, uh, you couldn't do that by going and looking at a tree. But you can do that by looking at a forest and looking at lots of different trees all at once. Uh, and so that's what we're doing with these planets. We're looking at lots of different planets. And we can't see a planet form, but by looking at a lot of them, we can learn what they're made out of, uh, learn how they form. And that will tell us how Earth formed and how the solar system formed as well. Can you give us kind of a preview of what you're looking for next? Uh, yes. So we're doing uh, another object like this, but instead of just looking uh, as it goes behind the star, we're looking over the course of the entire orbit. So we get to see uh, the entire climate as it moves around its star from day to night, uh, which is going to be very exciting to watch how the, uh, the features in the atmosphere change as it goes from day to night uh, and try and model that. It's, uh, anyway, I'm, re I'm really looking forward to getting into it, actually. I have to do some other stuff first, but I'm looking forward to getting to work on it. In about 30 seconds, uh, is there any potential for any of these planets that you have seen, any of these stars, to sustain life? Uh, no. So these are much bigger um, than their Jupiter size, so they're not like the Earth. Uh, but the exciting thing is, is that by looking at these climates, we also learn about Earth's climate. So when we look at planets the size of Earth later on, which are much harder to uh, work with, uh, this will give us a better idea about what their climates are like, what their precipitation is like, uh, so eventually, hopefully in the next 20 or 30 years, we will be able to detect life around another planet. Dr. Thomas Beatty is Assistant Research Professor at Penn State's Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics. Dr. Beatty, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, tomorrow is the most heavily traveled day of the year. We will have uh, State, State Trooper Adam Reed here answering your traffic law questions. That's on tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. 